This morning we are in Revelation 21 and 22, the last two chapters of the Bible. So it should be easy to find, right? Just turn to the very back, last two chapters of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22. And this is going to end our uh, series that we've been in, a view of the Bible from 30,000 feet. This is This is the last in that series. So if you are participating in the project, today would be the day that you would take that inventory that I sent you, uh, the the post-series inventory, and then return it back to me um, as quickly as you can, uh, because you completing that inventory will depend on when I can graduate. I'm hoping to graduate in December. So if if you are the persons who are participating, you know who you are. Please get that back to me as soon as you can. All right. Revelation 21 and 22 is where we have at, where we're at, and we have come all the way from the beginning of the Bible in Genesis, right? With God creating this world. And now we're coming all the way to the end where God is going to restore and recreate the broken world in which we are in, right? We, we looked at the fall where you know, mankind just completely broke this world by rebelling against God and, and sin uh, and death started to plague and affect the world in which we live. But Jesus has come and Jesus died for our sins and Jesus is going to return and he's going to set everything right. And so that's the picture that we're going to view this morning as we turn to this last message in the series. Hopefully you found your place. I'm going to read just a selection. We can't read all two chapters, but I'm going to read a selection from Revelation chapter 21 verses 1 through 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexual immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we come to you this morning thankful again for this opportunity to gather together both here and, and, and at home to worship you, Lord. To sing songs of praise to you as we did a moment ago as we, as we were pr- singing about the restoration of all things. And now we, we turn to that in, in your word to hear about that and to learn more about that. And God, as we turn to this text today, help us. Help us to learn more about the kingdom to come. So that, we might be, so that we might be given hope to continue to persevere in the world in which we live, knowing that you will conquer 
all things and set all things right. In this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I don't know about you, but, but I, I have a problem finishing books. Not so much novels, but my Christian living and, and my theology books. I have, an, have a problem finishing those books. Typically, I will, I will start reading a book. I will get really excited about the topic that I'm reading, and, and I'll just begin digesting that book quickly. And, and, and about 100 or so pages in, though, uh, you know, my, my interest in that book will wane or a new topic will come up and, and I'll begin exploring that book. And so what I'll do is I'll take that book and I'll set it aside in my currently reading pile or, or now that, that since I'm doing a lot of more work from home because of the COVID deal, I've got a, a shelf in my office there at home that has a bunch of books on it. And, and then I've got a, a place by the fireplace where there's a bunch of books there as well. And, and I've got another pile on our, on our counter that my wife keeps moving, but I keep putting that, that pile back. And, and, and in each of these piles, there are, there are books that I'm reading. There's, there's topics that I am exploring, but but those piles never seem to get smaller. They just keep growing. And some books, I kid you not, have been in those currently reading piles for over a year, which, you know, really is not a, a currently reading pile, right? Now, eventually, a question is going to arise, and, and I'm going to get back to those books. Uh, I, might, I might finish those books, but that's not always, that's not always the case. Now, my, my other pastor friends and, and the ministry leaders that I follow assure me that that is not a problem. They argue that books are tools and not all books are meant to be read cover to cover. You know, you, you use them for the task that is at hand just like you would any other tool. And then, then when you get finished using that, you, you go and you put that back in your tool shed just like you would at home. And I like that analogy. I not only like it because I think it's a helpful way for, for us to think about reading different books. You don't always have to read them cover to cover. You, you read them for the value that they offer you and the tools that they offer you and the knowledge that they offer you at the moment. And you have a bunch of tools that you can go and you can pick from from your shelves just like you have a bunch of tools out there in your toolbox or in your tool shed. So I like it because of that, but I also like it because it, it makes me feel better, right? That those piles are not going to get any smaller. This, is, this has just been my practice for years and years and years, and so those piles are not going away. While I have a hard time finishing books, one book and one story that will eventually come to an end, whether we want it to or not, is God's story. The biblical story, the story that we've been working through over the last six weeks. There's no stopping time. Time keeps marching forward, which means that God's story will eventually come to an end, whether we are ready for it or not. And as believers, we don't have to fear the end of God's story because we know how God's story will end. God gives us a, a sneak peek, a, a spoiler, if you will, here of how his restoration project is going to end, what his restoration project is going to look like, right? You know, you guys maybe watch some of those restoration shows that, that come on television and, and, and you see these, these houses, these broken down houses. And, and then you go and you sit down with the designer Designer and, they, and they show you all of the things that this house can look like, right? You think about Joanna Gaines and, and Fixer Upper, and, and she sits down with those couples, and, and she shows them this kind of model on the computer of, of what it's going to look like. And you're like, wow, I can't believe that she could take that house and make it look like that. 
And then by the end of the show, the, the house does look like the plans that you see, and that's exactly what we are seeing here. We're seeing a picture, but in the future, it will be a reality. And believe me, we want to be a part of God's restoration project. And so how does God's story end? How can we experience the joys of the kingdom? Those are the two questions that we're going to answer this morning. How does God's story end? And how can we experience the joys of this kingdom? So we turn to God's word and we're going to answer the first of those two questions. And we, first we see that God's story ends with the new covenant community living in a recreated and restored world. That's how God's story ends. Now, unless you are living underneath a rock, you know the world in which we live is not perfect. All you have to do is turn on the news or scroll through your Facebook feed or open up the newspaper or your news app on your phone to figure that out, right? Apart from documenting the rainfall and, and you know, the sports scores because we know that, that sports is back on. I watched the baseball game last night, even though I didn't see who won against the, the Houston Astros and the L.A. Angels, I fell asleep and I woke up and the game was over. And so I've got to go and I've got to check that out. But, but sports are back, right? Um, amen for that. So you frequently see headlines apart from those, like sex offender given life sentence. Driver crashes into a tree. CEO is on trial for embezzling money. A corporate scandal is, is kind of pushing out there. Headlines like these and others are front page news all the time, so much so that, that we don't even bat an eye when we read about these, when we hear about these. We just need things to be crazier and crazier and crazier for us to even be shocked. And the fact that we are desensitized to these shocking stories should clue you into the fact that, that we do not live in a perfect world. But just because we don't live in a perfect world does not mean that we don't want to live in a perfect world. If we are honest with ourselves, all of us want to live in a perfect world. And this longing begins when we are children. So for their first and, or for, not first, for their fourth and second birthday parties, Camden and Bryson decided that they wanted to have a superhero party. And Camden was four, so he was able to make more of the decisions than Bryson was at the time. But, but both of them were, were very excited about this superhero party that they were going to have. And many of their friends, you know, they, they ended up coming dressed in their superhero costumes. We gave out superhero party favors. We even had a superhero photo booth that, that we could take pictures of them and their friends with. And it ended up being a very fun party. A lot of people came out to it. A lot of the kids came dressed up in all kind of different superhero costumes. Some I've never even heard of before, but, but they assured us that they were superheroes. Um, and, and, you know, it was, it was great. It was, it, was, it was a fun party. But why superheroes? Why did they pick those superheroes? Why did all the other kids who, who came, they didn't have to go out and run and, and buy themselves a superhero costume. They already had the superhero costume. So why did the people gravitate towards these things? Why did the boys choose that theme? Why do grown-ups, you know, pay money to go and watch superhero movies and, and buy superhero comics and read those and, and even buy superhero costumes and wear those around themselves? Why do, we, why do we do those things? Well, I believe it is because we know the world in which we live is broken. 
We want this world to be fixed. We long for it to operate rightly. We long for something or someone to set things right. And we know that, that, that we can't set the world right. But maybe, maybe someone who is superhuman, who has powers that we don't, maybe they can push back the darkness. Maybe they can fix this broken world. And our longing for the world to be fixed is what draws us to these superhuman feats, what draws us to superheroes so that we are paying tons of money to go and watch these movies and buy these comics and buy our kids all of these costumes and, and all of those things, right? I mean, this is why we, we are drawn to those. And while you might have believed that, that Superman could fix the world when you were a kid, hopefully by now you know that the Man of Steel isn't going to provide the fix that we so desperately need. No matter how strong Superman is, right, he can't provide the utopia <coughs> for which we all long. But you know who can, and you know who will fix this broken world. God can, and God will fix this broken world. Through the life, death, resurrection, and return of Jesus Everything is going to be set right. Everything that is broken will be restored. Amen. Now, how can we be so sure of that? Right? I mean, I'm, I'm telling you that. But how can we be so sure that this broken world will be restored? Well, even though the world in which we live right now is not perfect, we do experience the benefits of Jesus' restoration project as we live in the already not yet. Or to say it another way, we know the world is going to be restored because we experience the benefits of the restored world even now. Not in its fullness, but we do experience the benefits of the restored world even now. We're given a taste, we're given a glimpse. It's the already not yet. We're living kind of in this in-between where Jesus is reigning and ruling, but, but Jesus has not come back and ultimately got rid of sin and ultimately done away with all of the evil and difficulties in this world. But Jesus has renewed our hearts, right? We've talked about this. The new covenant is a, a covenant that renews our hearts so that we no longer desire to rebel against God, but we desire the things of God and we desire to live for God and seek Him. And so even now we experience the benefits of this restored world. You see, Jesus came. Jesus lived a perfect life in our place. Jesus performed where we failed. Jesus rescues us even now from having to live a, a performance-driven life. We can readily admit our failures. We can face them. We can work on them. Our performance does not earn us salvation, nor does our performance keep our salvation. Because Jesus performed on our behalf, we are able to enter into the kingdom. Jesus also came and, and Jesus died in our place. He paid the penalty for our sin. Those who believe in Jesus, those who believe that Jesus died for them, experience a restored relationship with the Father even now. We are actually adopted into God's family. We become His children and He becomes our Father. He's not just some distant God. He is actually our Father. Which means we don't need to run from God when we sin. We don't need to hide in, in shame and fear and guilt. Instead, we can admit our sins and ask God to help us because He is our Father and we are His children. And as His Father, He is there for us. And we experience God's fatherly care even now. And we will experience God's fatherly care even more perfectly in the future. 
Jesus also defeated sin, Satan, and death. Sin does not have any rule over us. We have been freed from the bondage of sin. Satan is no longer our master. We can put away our sins. We can actually live according to God's will and God's purposes for our life. We can live according to God's wisdom even now in this world. We can live as those who have been renewed in heart. Because Jesus has defeated sin, Satan, and death. Jesus has changed our hearts. And so even now, we experience the benefits of of Jesus' restoration project. His life, death, and resurrection, it frees us from a performance-driven life. It it keeps us from sinking away from God and in shame and fear and guilt. It allows us to live as renewed citizens of the kingdom to come. And while we experience these blessings now, you you got to know that that Jesus is not finished with his restoration project. That doesn't mean that, that he's not going to finish. Jesus is certainly going to finish. One day, Jesus will complete his restoration project when he returns. <clears throat> and when that day comes, he will completely defeat Satan. He will judge the world in which we live. And once that has taken place, we are told in Revelation 21 that a, that a new heavens and a, and a new earth will appear. And so... Look at verse 1 with me, Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had, had passed away, and the sea was no more. And the sea is a place of, of chaos. It's a place of, of evil. We talked about this back in, in the creation account. The sea is, is no more. Not that, not, not, that, not that all the seas have been passed away, but, but that chaos and evil is, is no longer in this world. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And so the longing that, that begins with us as a kid to live in a perfect world, it is, it's realized in Jesus. He's the one who makes things new. He is the one who will restore this broken world. He's the one who will make this world perfect again. The world will be perfect because God's kingly rule will be fully consummated as sinful rebellion is completely and fully eradicated from this world. Again, we, we experience a, a taste of that now as we live in the, the already not yet. Jesus is reigning and Jesus is ruling. We are able to exercise our kingly, priestly vocation now, but not fully and not completely. We are still hindered by sin, even though, we have, even though sin has been defeated, even though we don't have to sin, we are still hindered by sin. The world in which we live does not submit to Jesus as its Lord and as its Savior, as its King. The world continues to seek Jesus as throne attempting to be big k kings instead of rightfully taking their place as little k kings but that will not last forever jesus will return jesus will eradicate all of the difficulties in this world he will set up his perfect kingdom we will one day live in the not yet portion of the already not yet and the not yet of the kingdom to come will be perfect 
Verse 4 tells us that there will be no more tears. There will be no death. There will be no mourning. There will be no crying. There will be no pain. There will be no cancer, AIDS, dementia, failing health. These things will not exist in the world to come. And if you skip across the page to Revelation chapter 22, verse 3, we learn that, that no longer will there be anything accursed in the world to come. When John says there won't be anything accursed in in the kingdom to come, what he means is that there won't be anyone living in the kingdom to come that is sinful. Everyone who lives in in the world to come is going to be absolutely sinless. The new heavens and the new earth are not going to consist of users and abusers. There won't be any broken relationships. God's perfect sinless people will serve and will love one another in ways in which we can only dream of now. In the new heavens and the new earth, there will be life. And the life will be abundant for all of eternity. And the reason this will be the case is because in the new heavens and the new earth, our life will be perfectly sustained by God. John makes that point when he writes about the river that is flowing from the throne of God, starting in verse 1 of of chapter 2. Have this picture in mind. There's, there's a throne room in the, in, in the new heavens and the new earth. And there's this river that is flowing from it. Verse, 20, verse 1 of chapter 22, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the streets of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And so here's the tree of life. Remember the tree of life from the creation account. Here's the tree of life again in the recreated, restored world. And it's being fed with water from the throne of God. If you also remember in John chapter 4, as we were walking through the Gospel of John, and we'll be back in the Gospel of John next week. But, but there in John chapter 4, Jesus, he, he talks to the woman at the well. And, and what does He offer her? He offers her living water. Water that would sustain her forever. And John's picture in Revelation is, is connected to Jesus' claim there in, in John chapter 4. I mean, the picture that John paints in Revelation is that of living water flowing from the throne. Water that, that flows from Jesus' throne throughout all of the land. And as the water flows through the land, there's this perfect Edenic paradise that is being created. And since the, the water originates from the throne, this water is, is never going to dry up. It will flow for all of eternity sustaining God's perfect world. And as if John's picture of the restored world is is not magnificent enough, next we learn that that God's story not only ends with us living in a perfect world, but but God's story ends with us perfectly accomplishing our God-given vocation. Verse 3 of chapter 21, John tells us that he heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. In the world to come, God will be our king. 
If you remember, that was something that Israel rejected after they came out of the, out of the promised land, or when they were in the promised land, excuse me. They wanted to be like the nations around them, having a human king rule over them. And, and as we all know, as we've just marched through the biblical story, we saw that that did not go well at all. King after king after king sinned against the nation, sinned against God, led them into idolatry. And then the nation ended up splitting under Rehoboam and and eventually being exiled out of the promised land by by God himself. And while the entire nation, I mean, think about this. God says, I'm going to give you this land. He, He makes a way for them to have this land. And then not too long after they're in this land, they're sinning against God. And then he has to kick them out of the land that he gave them because they were so sinful. And because they rejected him that much. The kings failed because they weren't perfect. They were sinners just like the citizens of their kingdom. And when you have an imperfect person leading imperfect people, well, there's bound to be failure. I mean, just think about, just think about work. Just think about your workplace. You go to work and, and you've got an imperfect manager who, who is leading you, an imperfect supervisor who is leading you, and you are an imperfect person yourself. And so conflict arises. And, and what do you do? You go home and you tell your wife or your husband, oh, I can't believe the supervisor did this day. can't believe him. Can you believe what my manager wants me to do? How he wants me to I can't believe it. Imperfect people leading imperfect people. Sin is bound to occur. We should not be shocked by that at all. But that won't be the case in the future because in God's future kingdom, we will be ruled by a perfect king and and we will be perfect people perfectly accomplishing God's given purpose for our lives. Jesus will be what the king of old could not be. Instead of leading us into sin or, or sinning against us, Jesus will lead us into righteousness. And as his people, we are free from sin and and we will be righteous ourselves. We will rightly accept his reign and, and his rule over our lives. We will recognize his wise leadership for what it is and we will perfectly follow him as, as priestly kings. And this, of course, is, is something new. As Christians, we, 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 should, we should want to obey God but that's not always how we live. There are times when we go off and we, and we do our own things and, and we do that because we believe that we are the king. Even us as Christians who have been freed from this sin, who've been freed from bondage, right, we go and we sin against God. We rebel against God. We desire to rule according to our own wisdom thinking that we know what's best, but that is simply not true we don't know what's best the world does not know what's best that's why we and the world are messed up at times but thankfully we have the reign of the perfect king to look forward to as well as a a perfect heart which will perfectly desire God's reign and his rule over us we will be freed from from selfishness and and sinfulness and self-serving and we will want to serve God we will want to serve others perfectly and when we submit to God and, and seek to accomplish our God-given vocation, we, we worship God. That's something else that, that John tells us he sees in, in the kingdom to come. And in the very last part of, of verse 4 of, of chapter 22, John says this, And his servants will worship him. Now some of your translations may say, 
and his servants will serve him instead of worship him. And I think that translation is it probably better communicates what, what we actually see here that's going to take place. It's actually getting to the heart of what worship actually looks like. It looks like us serving God, following his plan and his purposes for glory. Right, we have a worship service where we, where we come and, and we sing to the Lord and we hear the preached word. And that is certainly worship. But, but worship is also serving God each and every single day in our lives. And the idea of service as worship is what leads one writer to say this. Worship is to be a way of life. One in which we honor and glorify God for who he is and what he has done. In true worship, we stand in reverent awe before him acknowledging Him to be our God, submitting to His sovereign rule in our life, and giving Him our very best. Our lives are offered to Him as living sacrifices. All that we do is sacred, because every act is lifted up to Him as an offering. Of course, there is something unique and significant about believers coming together in corporate worship, but when they leave... They do not cease to worship, but rather continue to honor and glorify God wherever they go and in whatever they do. You see what he's saying? All of life is to be worship. Not just an hour or two on, on Sunday morning. All of life should be worship. And I believe that's what John is getting at when he, when he paints the picture of us serving God. We are, we are worshiping Him. In the kingdom to come, we aren't just going to be gathered together in one big, huge worship service for all of, of eternity. No, no. We are going to be active in God's world. And in that activity, we will be serving God. We will be worshiping God. But worship isn't just something that we will do in the world to come. Worship is something that we should do now, which means that we should live a life of service to God. We should live as, as living sacrifices, not just once a week on Sunday again, but every single day. And we worship God daily as we seek to live according to His will for our lives. As we live out the great commission to make disciples. As we love and care for one another. As we do work unto the Lord in the vocation in which He has called us to His glory. In our day-to-day -day lives, we can and we should worship God in those day-to-day activities whether we are washing the dishes whether we are caring for our kids whether we are working wherever it is we should do all to the glory of God in every interaction we have we should do all to the glory of God when we are alone by ourselves and nobody can see us we should do all to the glory of God that's something that we will do perfectly in the world to come but that is also something that we can and we should do now we can we can worship God by serving him each and every single day. Amen. And when I think when, when we make that paradigm shift for what worship actually is, then, then that should drive us to begin serving God more and more each and every single day. It should drive us to want to have a relationship with Him, to read His Word, to gain His wisdom, so that we might understand how we might better live for God each and every single day. How we might allow His wisdom to influence us each and every single day. That should drive us to God's Word in the morning or midday or evening, whenever it is that, that, that you read God's Word. But, but we should be driven to God's word to read that, then we should live out of that wellspring that we are, we are filling up God's word each and every single day. 
And when we do that, when we, when we give ourselves as a living sacrifice, as Paul talks about in, in Romans chapter 12, we crawl on that altar. And we stay there on that altar, sacrificing our will, our wants, our desires for God's. And we're saying, God, how would you have me to live? How would you have me to act? What does your word say? When we do that, we are actually worshiping God. I think we need to make that paradigm shift so that, so that we begin to see worship in that way. And continuing on in the narrative, we also learn that, that God's story ends with us experiencing unhindered access to God. Again, in, in verse 3 of chapter 21, tells us that God will dwell with man. And then in verse 4 of chapter 22, it tells us that we will not only dwell with God, but, but we will see his face. In other words, we are going to have an, an intimate relationship with God. God is not just going to be this, this king that is sitting off on a throne somewhere that we can have no access to at all. No, God is going to be with us. We are going to be able to boldly go into God's throne. We can already do that now in prayer. Imagine how much more we can do that in the future kingdom to come when God is there with us. We can boldly enter into God's throne room. He will walk with us in the cool of the day like he did with Adam and Eve. That's what we have to look forward to, unhindered access to God. I mean, think about that. The God of the universe, the, the God who has created everything, is offering us unhindered access to him. No other religion offers that. Christianity does. It offers us an actual relationship with God. The end of God's story tells us that we will live in a perfect world. We will worship and serve Him as, as King, as His perfect King who, who perfectly rules over us. And we will have unhindered access to Him. That's the picture of the world to come that is, that is being painted here in these last two chapters of the book of Revelation. That's the picture that's captured for us that we have to look forward to. Now, I don't know about you, but that, that sounds pretty great to me. But we still got that last question we got to answer. How can we experience the joys of the kingdom to come? How do we experience the joys of the kingdom? How do we get into this kingdom, in other words? In, Re in verse 27 of Revelation 21, John tells us that nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And again in verse 14 and 15 of Revelation 22, John tells us that only those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexual immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Those people are outside of the kingdom. But those who have washed their robes in the blood of Jesus are in the kingdom. Those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, those are in the kingdom. Amen. You can't just jump over the wall and get into the kingdom. You can't come through the back door. You notice those who enter through the gates are going to be these folks here. Clearly not everyone is allowed into the kingdom. Not everyone is going to experience the joys of the kingdom. But what is the dividing line? What determines whether a person is in the kingdom or out of the kingdom? 
In Revelation 27, we have the Lamb's Book of Life. And he reveals that our names have to be written in it or we're not going to be able to enter. As well as he tells us that no one who is unclean will be granted entrance to the kingdom. In order to be clean, we have to have had our, our robes washed. And it's not clear from this verse how or, or in what way that our, that our robes are going to be washed. But back in chapter 7, in verse 14, John tells us that those who have already entered into Jesus' presence have washed their robes in the blood of Jesus. That's how you enter in. You have a bloody robe. And it's Jesus' blood that is on your robe that you are wearing. How do we wash our robes in the blood of Jesus? Well, Jesus' blood is not something that you can just run down to Walmart and pick up and throw in your washing machine and wash your robes with. And so how can we be washed in Jesus' blood? The only way we can wash our robes in Jesus' blood is to believe the gospel. Amen. And the gospel is shorthand for the good news. In biblical terms, the good news is that Jesus has, has taken our punishment for us. He has come. He has died in our place. He has lived the life that we could not live as the perfect human, perfect God-man. And he goes and he dies as the perfect sacrificial lamb. God's wrath is poured out on him instead of us. When we repent of our sins and we believe that Jesus has done that for us, when we admit our rebellion and how we have lived as big K kings instead of little K kings, when we admit that and we, we turn to Jesus and we call him our Lord, we call him our Savior. We believe that he has indeed saved us from God's wrath and eternal punishment. When we believe that, that Jesus died on the cross at Calvary for us, when we believe that, when we admit that, we have our robes washed in the blood of Jesus. We are covered in Jesus' blood. God looks down and he no longer sees an, an unclean people. Instead, he sees a, a clean people. If you can imagine clean people being wearing a robe of blood. But he looks down and he sees us clean because we're wearing Jesus' blood. And Jesus perfectly gave himself for us. And he cleansed himself. He cleanses us by his blood. And so when God looks down, he sees that. And we wear those robes and we can walk through the gates. Not because of our performance. Not because of anything that we have done. But all because of what Jesus has done for us. And the good news is, is that the ability to be washed in Jesus' blood is, is open to all peoples. Look at verse 17 of, of chapter 22. The Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. We can all come, all people from all nations, all tribes, all socioeconomic statuses can come. 
Coming costs us nothing, even though it costs Jesus everything. We don't and we can't pay for the water of life. It is freely given to those who would repent and believe in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. This is why the gospel is what will heal this broken world. It is the gospel that will bring us together and create unity in our country and in the world. It is the gospel that will push out injustices. It is the gospel that we should focus on. It is Jesus that we should focus on. We must turn to Jesus. Every single person is equal at the foot of the cross. Everyone can come to Jesus and believe in Him as their Lord and as their Savior. Their names are in the Lamb's book of life. They will be washed in His blood and they will be able to walk through those gates in the new heavens and the new earth. Amen. And so if you have not repented, if you don't believe, then, then heed Jesus' words here to come. If you're thirsty and you desire eternal life, then come to Jesus. If you want to experience the joys of the kingdom, then come to Jesus. Come to Jesus today. This is the, this is the plea of the end of the book of the Bible. Come to Jesus. If you haven't repented, come to Him. And if you have turned to Jesus, if you believe in Him, then praise God because God's restoration project ends with His new covenant community living in a recreated and restored world with unhindered access to God, worshiping Him as He perfectly reigns and rules over you for all of eternity. That's how God's restoration project ends. That's how we can experience the joys of the kingdom to come. Will you experience those joys today. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we come to you today thankful, thankful that you will fix what is broken in this world. Thankful that you have, have already begun to do that. Thankful that we can already taste some of the world to come. And God, we pray today for those who may not have turned to Jesus who haven't come, that, that they would see that Jesus is their only hope. That they wouldn't turn to superheroes or anything else in this world, but that they would turn and they would come to Jesus. And for those of us who have turned to Jesus, who have repented and believed, may we live life and worship to You. May this text today give us hope, God, and give us hope in the broken world in which we live. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.